and welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks, with Katie and Allie. Normally, it would just be Allie and I hanging out, having cocktails, and talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Lynn Garifola. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, and I've, I'm dying to know the cocktail. Thank oh, you. great. <laughs> Well, Lynn is a professor of dance at Barnard College. She is a dance historian, critic, and author. And today she is here to talk about her newest book, La Nujinska, Choreographer of the Modern. So Lynn, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I grew up in New York City um, and I still live in New York City, although I've spent time in South America and in uh, Europe. I've also spent actually some time in Kiev um, in connection with this project. So we can talk about that a little bit later when we talk about the book, because that opened myself to a huge, um, a, a whole other part of the universe uh, that I was writing about. And now some of the people that I uh, worked with are defending the city, but we can talk, we'll talk about that a little bit later. So I studied dance and I, when I was younger mm -hmm. and um, went to college. I was a um, romance language major. I lived abroad for a while. And then I came back to New York and decided to go to graduate school. Well, actually I was working as a translator for the Berlitz Translation Service. And then I, I just started going a lot to dance. Even though I had studied dance before, I hadn't actually seen much dance and it was, it, fantastic time to be in New York City because it was the height of the dance boom and there was everything was booming from ballet this was not long after all the defectors were coming like Baryshnikov I saw some of Baryshnikov's early performances with Gelsey Kirkland uh, before they had their falling out I saw uh, there were all these wonderful performances in Soho which then really was an artist neighborhood which it isn't which later on it, it wasn't. And, um, and then I thought uh, when it came time for me to think about my, I was by now in graduate school, about what to write my dissertation about, I said, I really don't want to write about the picaresque language, uh, novel in three languages. <laughs> I want to write about dance mm -hmm. and literature. And I was very intrigued by the fact that uh, Marcel Proust and James Joyce had actually met at an after, a post-performance party of the Ballet Russe. How would this happen? You know that. In my experience, not that I went to so many post-performance parties, um, but this was not something I, I knew about. So that kind of began, that question, how did that happen, began my uh, thinking about dances having a history. Um, because I didn't, to me, dance was in the moment. It was what I went to see. It was what I learned from my teachers. It was what I might do, I myself might do in a class or not that I performed very much, but certainly in classes. And so that began a whole other experience. And I began writing some criticism and wrote for Dance Magazine a little bit and did some editing for Dance Magazine. And then things just kind of kept happening. And my book got bigger and bigger. And it was, in fact, when I wrote my first book, Diaculus Ballet Russe, that I first encountered this entire world um, that in a certain sense with 
Lenijinska, I've been rewriting. It's not that I've been completely rewriting what I wrote, but it's like looking at the same period and looking at some of the, you know, the cast of many of the same characters and seeing them from a, a different angle. Mm -hmm. Well, perfect. Well, we're really excited to get into this book and this particular <laughs> dance period because it's fascinating. <laughs> um, so, Because it's all in Russia, we decided to do a twist on a white Russian because um, I think that you know, Lena Jinska really added a little bit of a twist to the ballet world. <laughs> well, I like that, the twist to the yes. <laughs> So this is a coffee liqueur, vanilla vodka, and coconut rum, uh, and what? then cinnamon sugar, and of course, topped with heavy cream like a white Russian. So cheers. <laughs> oh, well, cheers. That looks uh, really scrumptious. Sounds scrumptious, <laughs> too. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to start by talking about your book obviously can you kind of set the scene for us what is the time what is the place and what's really happening in your book well I start my book at the beginning of her life she is a biographer I mean this is a biography however I don't really spend that much time on the very early life because she wrote about it herself in a book that's called Early Memoirs and I wasn't able to go back and uh, and recapitulate what happened to her you know her family was she was born in Minsk which is today in Belarus her brother Vaslav was born in Kiev um where she later uh, lived. Her parents, who were uh, born in Poland and had trained uh, to become ballet dancers in Poland, were what were called itinerant dancers. Um, basically, they would have contracts from season to season at these different municipal theaters throughout southern and western Russia. Um, southern and western Russia at that time was, was what you might call multicultural in that there were people from Poland and Belarus, you know, white Russians as they called them. There were Ukrainians, there Lithuanians, Georgians. Uh, this was, the, this is the world that we've been hearing about in the last um, couple of uh, weeks. And so she grew up in that environment. And then finally her mother said, now this is enough traveling and she insisted they, the family settle in St. Petersburg. By now, Nijinska was about eight years old. Um, she, um, her mother, to whom she was very attached and with whom she lived until the mother died in 1932, um, they, uh, the mother wanted her two children to enroll at the Imperial Ballet School in St. Petersburg. And um, Vaslav, her older brother, did, and then um, Nijinska did. And in early memoirs, she describes her events and her progression through the school. And as they realized that her brother was really something extraordinary, very much out of the ordinary, how this was. And then she kind of goes on. So I basically say, um, I, I kind of leave my introduction and I say, now we'll go to when she graduates. Um, Branislava Fominichna Nizhinska graduates into the Imperial Ballet and, you know, as her friends call her, Bronya. And then I, then we look at the Ballet Russe in this early uh, period 
and go on to with her work with her brother when he first begins his choreographic experiments using her as his the clay for you know his own the stand-in for his own body and then uh, the his rite of spring and how she progresses through the ranks how she falls madly in love with this opera singer named Shaliapin um, and how everyone including her brother and Diaghilev and the other ballerinas say no no no, no you can't have him he just loves to go after women <laughs> it was absolutely true but she, she was heartbroken and wrote about him literally for the next 40 years in her um, diary this becomes almost an obsession she felt that Shaliapin in that summer in 1912 with the lilacs blooming in Monte Carlo that he had kind of unlocked her creativity mm. and it's almost like she would begin in these diaries that she would keep to talk about her creativity and Shaliapin one after another you know it's as though the sense of him unlocking her womanhood it's like she wasn't violated but in but she had certainly he had certainly entered her yeah <laughs> if you know what I mean oh yeah in the most, in the most deepest sense of yeah. the <laughs> and then everyone didn't want her to marry the guy she finally married on the rebound, including mm -hmm. her mother, uh, because he was, and her mother said, I, you shouldn't marry another dancer. I married a dancer and then he left me for another partner when I got too old. And of course, uh, he, <laughs> he too was someone with a roving eye and uh, eventually left her when they were living in Kiev and, or she threw him out. Yeah. Uh, uh, when she found him in the dressing room with an, another ballerina. <laughs> now it's interesting. Because the ballet world is all right. <laughs> now I love that you mentioned the rite of spring because when I read that, I was really interested because that was a pretty controversial ballet at the time, from what I understand. Like people kind of rioted at the, you know, at the yeah. premiere, and it also seemed to come at kind of a tense time between her and her brother. Because I think she was pregnant or something at the time. So it seems yes. like that's kind of a stressful time in their lives. Well, the Bride of Spring, of course, was one of the major mm -hmm. uh, landmarks of modernism. Uh, it, was, uh, it was composed by Stravinsky and, and, and premiered in 1913. It was so complex musically and, uh, and uh, rhythmically that the musicians had to have umpteen rehearsals in order to play the score for the first performance. As for the dancers, it was once again, extremely complex, uh, especially because Nijinsky was beginning to experiment or play around a little bit with some ideas connected with eurythmics. He had this idea that the different parts of the dancers' bodies would move in different, um, in different rhythmic patterns, which made it, incredibly difficult to rehearse, to choreograph a work for something like 35 dancers. Nijinska was his choice for the chosen maiden, that is to say the young woman who at the end is basically sacrificed to the tribe so that she can, so that they, the earth will be fertile. This is the rite of spring so they can, the, the people will survive uh, through her uh, immolation. And uh, he had choreographed it for her and then she got pregnant um, and he was 
irate. He had not wanted her to marry the husband. He thought this was, he practically, he went up and slapped the husband. The mother who was there had to intervene and say, it's only natural, you know, that, um, you know, people when they're married, after all, she had been, uh, she had been married to a dancer. She was a dancer herself and she had had three children. So she, and this was all because Nijinska had told him and said, you really have to have a second person in the event I can't perform. As it turned out, throughout the rehearsal process, she was dancing. After the um, uh, premiere of The Ride of Spring, she was still dancing and she was dancing up till the end of August. Uh, no, not the end of August, the end of July. And her baby was born in the end of September. Of of September. So she was dancing throughout a good chunk of her pregnancy and also doing things that involved jumps and some dancing that was fairly strenuous. So she was tough, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but she did not dance in her brother's new ballets. Mm -hmm. So yes, she was extremely angry about that. Yeah. And one of the things in my first chapter of the book is that I was trying to sort of um, tease out, you might say, the anger that I feel is suppressed in some of her writing about her brother. Anger about the way he taught her sometimes by saying, well, you can't do point work in point shoes. Those shoes are terrible. I mean, he never worked in point shoes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there, but he still wanted her to go up on full point, although full point at that point would, would have just been straight up, not going over um, onto like the knuckle, but he wanted her to do that without shoes, you know, without proper shoes, just using the soft shoes, which was very, very challenging. And he never required that of anyone else, but you almost feel this, you know, a sense of almost torture or, um, and I, and so this anger was something I really was trying to tease out. Yeah. And speaking of her brother, he's a very, you know, acclaimed and accomplished and she is in her own right. Why are they so separated in history and why isn't there a more complete story of her already written? I think one of the reasons has to do with what happened to her brother, her brother's uh, fate. Um, uh, he went uh, he became very mentally, he became mentally ill, but very seriously mentally ill. In 1921, when she left Kiev and um, uh, with her family and she went to Vienna to see her brother, he was in an, a sanatorium there and he could say nothing. He didn't recognize her. He didn't recognize his mother. I mean, he was so total, he was so, he was catatonic with these bouts of violence. And um, so, uh, of course, that was enormously depressing to her. But the idea of the mad genius, someone whose life has been cut down. Also, his wife, Romola Nijinsky, whom uh, Nij my Nijinska did not like, <laughs> um, she um, was someone who used her husband. And in order to, uh, she wrote, she was a good... Uh, a pretty good writer, but she also sensationalized her husband's stories. So in the 1930s, when she wrote her first um, biography of him, and then subsequently edited his um, diaries in a particular way, 
it was to sensationalize his relationship with Diaghilev. Uh, and that um, she basically made Diaghilev to, out to be some kind of an ogre because of his relationship with Nijinsky. And of course there were subsequent um, uh, young men as well. Also, um, and then of course the madness, you know, meant every time in, in the mid 1930s, um, Nijinsky was given a series of shock treatments in Switzerland and he leaves the hospital, this poor man, he leaves the hospital and photographers and reporters from all the French magazines like Paris Match and others were all there to take pictures of him. I mean, this was just about her trying to, you know, use him to bolster her own claim to celebrity and also money, to make money. Yeah. And now in this kind of story, there's really no room for a sister. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. And it's it's a shame because it seems like she did so much for the dance world. So what made her choreography new and different and modern? What was she bringing to the table that wasn't there before? I think what she brought to the table was the idea of ballets that could have, um, that could be, that one didn't look like ballets from the late 19th century. They did not look like Swan Lake or Sleeping Beauty. They were one act ballets. They were often to modern music, although later on when she had to pay composers, someone else wasn't paying them. She often used 19th century music that was out of copyright. She um, also used the ballet vocabulary. In other words, she didn't just throw it out, mm -hmm. you know, the way someone like Isadora Duncan wanted to have nothing to do with ballet vocabulary and Martha Graham, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but rather she wanted to use it in a way that made it look different, you know? So instead of everyone um, having to use the extremes of turnout, you, you know, where the legs are turned out. So um, you'd see the dancers like Elsie Kirkland walking down Broadway and they would look like ducks because their legs <laughs> would all be turned out. But she didn't um, do that. She also, it was also very often a, the stories were different. I mean, one of her early and great pot de, um, duets, pas de deux, was for a woman who's wearing a what looks like a, a men's uh, smoking jacket and tights, which was very uh, extreme at that moment, um, dancing with a man whom she like never looks at. So, and the pas de deux is supposed to be the sort of romantic core of a you know traditional ballet and she's the two just don't look at one another she also would appropriate to herself um roles where uh or create roles for herself where much of what she was dancing the steps she was dancing are kind of steps that are usually used by men that you find much more in male choreography she even created a number of uh roles for herself that were male roles um in the mid 1930s, she did a, a version of Hamlet to um, music by Liszt. Um, he did a Hamlet um, tone poem, and she um, she played Hamlet. And she had a young American girl um, who must have been about 15 or 16, very much at the start of her career, who was playing um, Ophelia. So she had this ability to 
create innovative structures, as well as to use the, the classical vocabulary in a different way. Mm. And for her, it was really important to note that there was a difference between what you did in class. In other words, you would do, that doesn't mean um, as a ballet dancer that that's exactly what you did on stage. Mm -hmm. That one thing was really your foundation. It gave you the movement foundation, the discipline, so that then you could do all kinds of things on stage that were different. Mm. Unlike some chore many choreographers for whom there is a very close connection, you know, and certainly in the 19th century, there was. Yeah, rendezvous only. Rendezvous only. That's right. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't dance. I'm the dancer of the show. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about your research and um, your time in Kiev? Okay, well, first I'll tell you about my research. As I told you, I've sort of written around this period. I've curated a number of exhibitions um, uh, about various things. So I'm very familiar with the, um, I'm very, I have a pretty good familiarity with the general period. Um, however, um, uh, what made my life a lot easier and made it possible for me to get a little deeper into Nijinska herself was that she was a pack rat. Mm -hmm. And in, nine, in, I mean, she, in 1921, when she left Kiev with her mother and everything, basically she had to leave everything behind. But after that, she always had clipping services that would, uh, which meant she had scrapbooks of all the places she had been, which was tremendous because that meant from Warsaw to Buffalo, New York, I had, I had materials. And believe me, it's kind of hard to find um, stuff about Warsaw or Buenos Aires or something. So these scrapbooks, for instance, were fantastic. She kept her correspondence. She kept um, all kinds of notebooks where she would jot things down. She had sometimes three maybe even four copies of some of her diaries. She would start copying them over as though she were transforming, wanting to transform them into some kind of, I think almost fiction. And then it would just turn into something else, but this business of writing all the time. So I had a lot of materials um, and I was you know, really lucky that way. The um, other thing was that, um, at this point now, there are many, many, a lot of things have been digitized, newspapers and things. So when, it, so since her papers were in at the Library of Congress, I'm in New York, sometimes I didn't need to, certain materials I didn't have to get from the Library of Congress. I could just download them from my computer, thanks to the, uh, the national the French National Library's digital service and ProQuest and all of these um, other things. Um, I spent a lot of time um, listening to oral histories at the at New York Public Library. They had, in the 1970s, they initiated an oral history project for dancers. And a lot of people who had danced with Nijinsk in the 1930s and 1940s, and it settled in the US, were um, interviewed. And some of those were really interesting because they weren't, um, I mean, it was interesting to me that the American women had no problem working with her. 
Russian man. <laughs> so, um, you know, there was just, and then I spent the pandemic actually doing a lot of, a lot of interviewing and writing, um, again, in my room with dance, with a number of people, her dancers from the last company she worked with on, on any lengthy basis, which was in Buffalo, New York, the company no longer exists, but they were thrilled to talk about their experiences, to write to me about their experiences. They had real memories. They would send me articles that had appeared in Buffalo newspapers and things. So that, uh, I probably wouldn't have done quite that much research that way had it not been for the pandemic. So even though I, the pandemic was awful, uh, Never the lockdown was awful. Nevertheless, there were one or two good things that came out of it. And can we can we talk a little bit about your time in Kiev that you said sure. at the beginning of the show? You know, I knew nothing about Ukraine and Kiev before I started this project. Mm -hmm. And then it became clear to me, I, I, I knew she had spent time there. Um from 19, her husband got a job as the ballet master at the Kiev City Theater, which is now the Kiev um, Opera, uh, the major opera house there. And that Nijinska was his, as they would call it, premier danseuse, her, his first dance, the first dance, the leading dance, the ballerina of the company. And so they moved down there. The mother was very unhappy because she said, now we're back to the provinces. I did everything I could so they could. But now, and uh, you know, at first they're just doing the usual work around around the opera house and staging things, appearing in things. Her reviews were quite good. And then by 1917, things start changing, and it's that's the year of the Russian Revolution, uh, the first one, the second one. She gets a letter from her brother, wanting asking her to leave Russia to come and meet him in the West. They were going to do a company together. She goes to Moscow and unfortunately she um, can't, um, unfortunately she can't um, um, get safe passage out of the country. She got the visas, but not the safe passage. So at that point, uh, she goes back to Kiev which is now in the um, throes of the Ukrainian revolution. Uh, a republic had been declared, they, you know, no more czar. It was a, a moment of great um, excitement in the arts. They had a wonderful, um, it was a wonderful moment for modernism in Kyiv at, at that point. And she was very much part of it. She knew some of, she uh, knew and worked with a number of visual artists like Alexandra Exter, who was one of the great um, artists, also a woman, great woman artist of that period. And I think very much, much an inspiration for Nijinska during this early, early period. She um, founded her first school there. Um, now, during this whole period, um, Kiev is now changing hands about 20 times. The Poles come, the Germans come, the this comes, the Soviets come, the whites chase out the Reds, the Reds come back. And this happens about 20 times 
before things stabilized in, by 1921. And during that period, actually, Nijinska lost her, partly, uh, permanently lost some of her hearing, not all of it, but some of it. But she kept working. She kept staging, uh, teaching dancers, creating dancers, staging things. And, uh, and she was considered one of the sort of leading modernists in the, um, of, of that period, of that group. Uh, I think she was very unhappy when she left. I don't think she really wanted to leave uh, so soon, although in retrospect, it's probably good because a lot of the people that she knew um, who then subsequently moved to Moscow, some of them did not survive the purges in the 1930s. Um, there was of course the Ukrainian famine. So I went there the first time just simply as a um, as a tourist for a few days, and I uh, I brought someone with me who was an interpreter. We went to various places. I saw some material. I saw some visual material that was very exciting. I saw a little exhibition about um, some Ukrainian things that were taking place in the 1920s, and recognized the name of some of the names of some of Nijinska's students who had stayed behind and were choreographing and dancing and appearing in some of the more avant-garde productions of the period. And then I had hoped to find someone to do deeper research there, but I couldn't. Then I came back uh, later. Um, this time it was during a soccer match. Uh, we were, I was living in England at that point and I, it was summer and it was wonderful. And we went to all of these extraordinary churches and monasteries that are in the upper city of Kiev. And by then I had read um, closely some of her di uh, the diary from that period from 1919, 1920 that survives and, you know, and was able to visit some of the places, you know, where she talked about, you know, doing a dance on the, uh, sort of on the porch of this uh, veranda of this one church, which has a commanding view of the Dnieper River. Um, it was really beautiful. And I keep thinking, my God, I hope they don't bomb that, you know. And then, of course, the opera house, I was never able to go into the opera house, but it was so wonderful to see it and to kind of go around and see with the side entrance where um, a picture that Nijinska, a photo from 1916 that Nijinska had kept, showed her husband and her close friend, the soprano Nina, and a couple of other people who were friends. I think she took the snapshot myself. But there it is, you know, plain as um, day, hadn't changed much. And other places where I was able to, when I realized that she lived very close to the opera house. Her first studio, the School of Music, uh, the School of Movement, was very close to the opera house. So this was the, I had a feeling, a sense of the world that she had inhabited. Then the last time, uh, the third time I went, I was giving some uh, lectures and attending a few things that had been organized by some people, by some Ukrainian theater directors. And it was a, all of this was kind of an homage to this um, avant-garde theater director whom Nijinska knew and worked with named Les Kurbas. And, uh, 
And that again was really um, exciting because to meet a number of people to see how interested they were in what they felt was a kind of a buried moment of their own history, buried under the, you might say, great Russian nationalism and then uh, Soviet um, thing. By this time, the war in the east, in eastern Ukraine, had been going on for a long time. And on television, every night, there would be something about this war um, and the toll that it was taken, taking. And then uh, finally, um, I that I, I mentioned that photo outside the opera house. And when I showed that in one of my in my PowerPoint with one of the lectures, there was dead silence in the room. And you could see people straining to really see all the details. Again, this was something so lost mm-hmm. and it had been unearthed, you know, five thousand miles away and treasured by someone. You know, that was the thing, the treasuring of it. Um, and, and then um, I recently, within the last year, came, um, was in touch with some young dancers um, who were very interested not only in doing research about building on some things that I had published in, that they had published in a Russian um, uh, journal. They were trying to do additional research and then at the same time, they were also um, trying to recreate, I mean, not they couldn't do it exactly, but create something of the idea of some of Nijinska's very early solos mm-hmm. and a few very early works. And they, um, they sent me, you know, I was on some Zooms and they sent me some footage of uh, things they had done. And... So I feel a little connection. We've been exchanging some things. I have some things I've sent them. They've sent me some things. And now, you know, they're fleeing. One had reached, um, was fleeing, I think she's reached Poland. The other was going to the Western Ukraine. And then another um, is fighting in, um, stay behind in Kiev. So, you know, this is, um, you know, I'm grateful for Nijinska for having brought me in touch with this, with this world. But it's, I mean, I, Kiev is a city that has been bombed a lot during the revolution, during the second world war, there was a great deal of bombing, but the upper city, the place that was Nijinska city with the opera house with these churches, and then the whole complex of monasteries built into the hillside, this has all survived but I wonder if it's going to survive again. Yeah, that's such a good point. And it's why I, we love talking to authors like you who are writing about things that seem very in the past, but it's good to have these relics and these people who meant so much to these places. So mm. we're so happy you wrote this book. We're so happy for our readers to get to learn about this, you know, kind of unknown, very important woman of dance in this time period. Yes. Yeah, so we just want to thank you for coming on here and talking about your book and everything in regards to it's wonderful. Um, so where can our listeners find you and your book? Well, my book is now on Amazon. It has been a while. 
Yeah. Uh, there were some production delays. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the book was actually produced in uh, India mm -hmm. and I had visions and there were some production delays, but I had visions at some point of it sitting, all these Lonijinska books sitting in this container <laughs> in a ship anchored <laughs> for weeks at a time off the coast of Southern California. I'd wait, I truly, I would wake up in the middle of the night and have this fantasy. <laughs> this container, a container ship. Right. Um, but happily, um, the books have arrived and um, it no longer says you, you no longer have to pre-order. You can actually order it Yay. and it's shipping. So um, it is available. <laughs> well, thank now, you. I would love to hold it up and show you, except um, I haven't received a copy. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I will I say the cover is beautiful. Mm -hmm. I want to say that it's a gorgeous photo on the cover. Mm -hmm. So even if you just buy it for the cover, it's a good purchase. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I spent a long time thinking about this. They wanted something that was dancey, but I felt her strength was not. I have pictures of her dancing, mm -hmm. but more important is that she made dances. And so I loved the fact that this was, there were these wonderful dancers whom she was rehearsing, but somehow she was so charismatic that she's the one you look at. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? When and she's 70 years old. <laughs> when you finally get a copy, sign the first one for yourself. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, it's been such a blast. Um, we were so excited to talk to you and it's just so inspiring that people are out really doing this work. So thank you for being here today. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye